My name is Ashley Sebula, and welcome to the Through Every Season podcast, where we discuss what it's like to be a Christian woman in modern day society. We will dive into the truth, trials, and tribulations that come with having a faith. You're never alone here, and we will help you walk through every season. Welcome back to the Through Every Season podcast, episode two for the month of September. And boy, do we have an episode for you today. So today's episode features Taryn Kimber. Taryn is going to tell her story of her life, her journey with her faith, as well as what it is like, what it's truly like living with schizophrenia. Taryn is a 28-year-old woman who was born and raised in Indiana, and now she resides in Logan, Utah. She is a woman of God. She's a wife. She's a mother to a beautiful little two-year-old girl. And she's also somebody who is a mental health advocate. Today's episode does warrant a few trigger warnings because of some of the content that is in the episode. So just as a warning to those who are very sensitive to the following topics or for um, a younger younger ears that might be listening along with you, that we do discuss suicidality. We do discuss um, sexual abuse as well as substance use. And I just wanted to put that out there before you listen further in case you or those around you who are also listening are sensitive to those subjects. But we're going to dive right in. Welcome, welcome, Taryn, to the Through Every Season podcast. We're so excited to have you on today and to talk about everything that we have on the plate to talk about today. So how does it feel to be on the podcast? It feels like an honor. I really (laughs) super appreciate you reaching out to me and just letting me kind of talk about my experiences here. Of course. And I love how you said it feels like an honor, like I'm like the queen of England or something, or I'm just like <laughs> some little nobody like that just so happens to have, have a podcast, but very grateful that you're on and that you agreed to come on. You felt safe and comfortable enough to come on and talk about vulnerable things. So I feel grateful that, that you're, that you're here, but so you, and I, and I've talked about it in the intro but you were in Utah. So yeah, different from Ohio. So you're in mountain time. So it's only a little bit before 930 your time. It's 1130 my time. And you have on a sweater, which we already talked about before this started, how jealous I am that you're in a sweater and you're like going into a pumpkin patch today. So tell me what the weather is like in Utah. So the high today is supposed to be 65, um, but later on this week, it's going to get up to about 78, but it's the last hot week for the year. So I am super pumped about that. (sighs) I am jealous. So in the Midwest or here in Ohio, a couple weeks ago, we, and kind of even a week ago, we had like the perfect fall weather. 
and then it started to rise again. So it was pretty warm yesterday. And then today, I think it's going to be like a high of like 76 or 78. I can't remember. And then I think next week, we're going to have like a few days in the 80s. And I'm really mad because again, like I've moved on. I've moved on. It's the first day of fall. (laughs) I need the weather and the temperature to move on to better and lower degrees. So yeah jealous 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 of you but yeah (laughs) obviously you can't see us Taryn has like this beautiful white sweater moment on and then I'm here like in a tank top and like my overalls because it's I might sweat today so (laughs) (laughs) I am so jealous but as we do every single episode we start out with a drink of the day and Taryn I always let the guests go first for drink of the day so you need to tell me about your drink of the day because before you talk told me about it the other day. I had never heard of it. So educate us all, please. Okay. Well, I don't have a whole lot of educating to do with it because I'm still really new to it, but um, this is Yerba Mate. Um, I'm drinking it out of a gourd and I'm, uh, I have a bombilla in here. It's a Latin um, South American drink. It's an herbal tea. It has a lot of antioxidants uh, and a lot of caffeine. So that's main reason why I'm drinking it this morning. And then I've got my trusty water. <laughs> Do you know about how much caffeine it has in it or like what it could be comparable to something else, like a cup of coffee, for example? Yeah, actually, um, I think several scoops, which is, I, I want to say a serving size is about a teaspoon of dry leaf. Once you put that in, in your gourd, um, there's like 80 milligrams of caffeine. Like, so I've got, you know, one or two scoops in here. <laughs> so it's pretty comparable to like a cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I think a cup of coffee is like between like 60 to 80 milligrams of caffeine. So yeah, that's really comparable. And I know before we started recording, um, Taryn didn't get the best sleep last night. So she needs... <laughs> all of the caffeine today, but you're drinking it out of a gourd. Okay. You need to show me that thing. Show me the, that is so fancy. Yeah, it was honestly, um, I, I ISO'd it on a buy nothing page on Facebook because I really wanted to try it, but I didn't want to invest in the gourd and the Bombilla. So, um, I got it off of the buy nothing page and I also got the Yerba Mate, which is like a big one pound bag. And yeah, I've just been drinking it ever since. I'm loving it. I mean, not everybody likes the taste, but it's pretty good to me. I am amazed. And, you know, everybody on the podcast who's listening, they will be educated on a new type of tea and (laughs) a different part of the world, which I feel like most tea is like not originated in the United States anyway, but they'll learn something. So we love an education moment. I actually don't have coffee today. In the last few episodes, I've had coffee, but I did have coffee this morning. I didn't have coffee this morning, but I have a poppy. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love sparkling water and I've been really into like the probiotic drinks. Couldn't talk for a second. And Poppy's a really good one. They are kind of expensive, but I just bought a package of like, like 15 or 20 
at Costco last weekend for like 20 bucks. And that's a pretty good price for these drinks. And then this is a, a cherry limeade. I feel like they're really popular. Like they, they get advertised on like Instagram and I don't know, social media influencers are like sponsored by Poppy. So you'll, you'll see it if you follow like certain people, but yeah, that's my drink of the day today. And I haven't opened it yet. So I get to do my little ASMR moment where I get to open it up by the, <laughs> by the microphone, but We have cheers, Taryn. Cheers, cheers. <laughs> to the podcast this morning. <laughs> so in the intro, I gave a little bit about who Taryn is and then why she's here today, but I did not talk about how Taryn and I know each other. So Taryn is not originally from Utah. And I am not originally from Ohio. So Taryn and I are both from the same area in Indiana. We went to different, we went to different high schools and everything. And we were in like different counties or whatever. But we worked at Arby's together in high school. <laughs> so that is how Taryn and I know each other from. Um, the good old Arby's, we were, we had the meat, if you will. (laughs) And I don't know about you, Taryn, but I'm not going to lie. I don't know if it was the fact that they let Michaela and I work together for some reason, but Arby's was like legitimately one of my favorite jobs. (laughs) Yes. I, I look back on those memories with fondness. I have a lot of really good memories from there. Honestly, I do. I do too. And I don't, I don't even really eat at Arby's ever. I think I got burnt out on it from working there and they've changed their menu so much that I'm like, I can't handle that amount of change. So I don't think I'm going to go there, but do you eat at Arby's a lot now? No, I hardly ever go to Arby's anymore just because I did like behind the scenes when not making food, I would just like sneak some fries and whatever, but (laughs) I don't think you're supposed to do that, but (laughs) that's okay. Because what we would do if Michaela and I got to like work the back where like you made the food, you know, that like cheese machine. Yeah. 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 You know, of course you could open it and like, you have to set the bag of cheese in it, but it stays hot in there obviously because the cheese stays hot. So, um, Michaela and I would hide the things in there that we wanted to snack on from the fry station. So we would hide them in the cheese machine. That's awesome. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. We would think of so many different ways to, to snack on food there. I do remember, um, getting slightly reprimanded, not really. Cause I never really got in trouble for anything, but when we got pickles at one point for like, I think it was like for some special sandwich, like over 10 years ago. So I don't remember what it was. But um, we went through the pickles faster than they intended to. And I did get in trouble because I was eating them. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot of (laughs) memories from working, working at Arby's. But you went to North Vermilion High School, right? Yes. Yes. So what um, town did you live in since you went to North Vermilion? 
so we actually moved around two or three times while I was in high school. Um, our ending residential area was in Perrysville, and then I graduated, and then they moved to Newport. Okie dokie. So a lot of Indiana people who who listen are going to know where that is, but it's kind of <laughs> almost riding the line of like the Indiana-Illinois border. It's yes. like very central, but it's very west, pr- pretty much as west as you can go for um for Indiana. And then of course I went to Seeger High School and I lived in Williamsport and then Arby's. Obviously, people from the area are gonna know where Arby's is very clearly but it was in Covington. So it was off of, um, I almost said 65 again, not right at all. I've, I've not lived in Indiana for a while. So I do forget where (laughs) things are and what roads are called. It was 263. Yes. That's what it's called. It was right off of there at the pilot, at the pilot gas station, which that is still there. And the Arby's is still there, but a lot of things around there are different. And then of course it was right across from the beef house. So yeah. And then Taryn and I graduated the same year in good old 2013. Um, I guess this year it would have been at in May, 11 years since we've graduated. Right. Okay. Yeah. In 2024, it will be 11 years. We just had our reunion. Um, I want to say like a week ago. We I don't so, think we did one. So, so well, I didn't go to it. I I, I was right. like, I'm in Utah. I'm not going to fly out just for some reunion. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't blame you. But yeah, we're we're getting old. We're almost almost thirty. I am twenty nine here in a in a few weeks. So congratulations! That's so awesome. Is it congratulations or is it not? I don't know. I feel like the thirties are the new twenties. So oh, it definitely is. You know. Yeah, no, but yeah, that's how Taryn and I know each other is good old Arby's. So I like to, when I interview people for the podcast and we talk about their stories or we talk about their testimonies, I love to give listeners a picture of who you are, like who you are from your childhood all the way into who you are right now. So that way when they follow along, it's almost like a little movie or a book, if you will. So We go back to the beginning. So we're going to go all the way back to your childhood. And we've talked about it a little bit, but I know you, you said that you moved from different areas. So, Mm -hmm. um, are you from originally Perrysville? No. So I grew up in this little tiny town called Kate's and it's just outside of Covington. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. Like you would not expect to stumble across the town out there. Um, But that's where I grew up. And then we moved to like the Perrysville area, I believe. And you lived in several small towns. Um, What were the towns like? Like, what were the people like? What was the atmosphere like? What was the culture like? So... The small towns to me at the time were kind of annoying because everybody knew things about you, even if you didn't say it yourself. Um, But looking back on it now, where I'm in a city, I can really appreciate the small town mindset um, where everybody takes care of everybody and people are just like friendly 
you know, so that was kind of my experience with it. And I wasn't like from the area originally when I moved to like the Perrysville and Newport, um, the scenery. And uh, so there was some kind of like outcast, but also like shiny new toy, if that makes sense. Yeah, because when you moved, you probably moved depending on the time period, um, elementary schools, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually moved in third grade. I, w- I moved from Covington Elementary School to North Vermilion. Um, as you said about small towns, I felt the same way when I was younger. And for a while, for several years, I actually kind of resented the area that I grew up in. And I'm not really sure why, to be honest, but, and then I always talked about how I just wanted to move away and I wanted to move to a big city. And then for a while I did live in a big city. And then when I moved here to Ohio, um, I live outside of Columbus, but I moved to an area that was kind of like suburbs, but now (laughs) I live in a very small area um, outside of, of Columbus, Ohio. It is very small town. It's so small town. It's called, um, it's a village and it's just full circle. And I never said, I said, I would never live in a small town again. I never live in an area that was more than five minutes from a Starbucks. And it just goes to show like, never say never, (laughs) but I appreciate it more now. Like I appreciate like the small town atmosphere more, more now, like like what you said, but you live in in Utah now. So how does where you live in Utah compare to where you're from in Indiana? So there's a big culture out here. If you know anything about Utah, you know, there's a lot of Latter-day Saints. So there's a pretty decent population. I believe there's more in Arizona now than there is in Utah, but um, you when you come into town, you wouldn't be able to tell that there's like a huge LDS culture until you started talking to the people. Yeah, just right around there and about an hour and a half north of Salt Lake. And currently, there is 54,436 people living in Utah, like in, in the Logan area. Okay, that's definitely a big difference from where you grew up in Indiana that like maybe had a couple hundred people. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like maybe so (laughs) big big difference from where you grew up what did your family look like like how many siblings do you have if you have any um did you grow up with both parents in the household did you have other family members that were lived in your area and were very integrated into your life what did your family look like so I have a little brother he is three years younger than me we were best friends growing up my parents, just like any other couple, like they they fight, they bicker. Um, there was some a little bit more a sort of violence in the household. Like my parents have completely leveled out now and they're totally good. But I also lived really close to my grandparents. So like my grandpa, um, he was like my best friend growing up too. So he we were super, super close. And then um Yeah, cancer came into the picture, and (laughs) you can kind of guess where that went. 
I just remember being really close to my grandpa and everybody else was kind of a little bit further away. Like my mom and or my uh, dad's parents. Um, I used to stay all the night like at their house and uh, yeah, we would just have a good time. <laughs> and then um, with your family, did you go to church or were your grandparents the more quote unquote religious people in your family? What did that look like for you as a child? I don't think I was introduced to church or the idea of God until I was probably in about third or fourth grade. Um, that before then, my mom and I had kind of occasionally like attended a, a sort of Bible church. And if you know Kate's, um, you know, there's only one church in Kate's <laughs> a plus a pop machine. But, you know, that's a that's a different side of the coin. Um, <laughs> so we would occasionally go to church there and my great uh, aunt my, and my great uncle would attend there as well and some of our cousins. Um, and that's when God kind of like stepped into the picture for me. That's the first time I remember looking through the Bible, praying for the first time, you know, things like that. Were there any significant, event, significant events in your childhood? The big thing that we're going to be talking about today is schizophrenia and how um, God has sort of like helped me through that. So I remember having my first couple of hallucinations um, when I was really, really little. I would see like a sort of fog build up in the hallway. We lived in the trailer. So my brother and I shared a big bedroom and then my parents were at the end of the hallway and I would just see like this sort of like mist build up in the hallway, which was really, really strange for me. It wasn't super alarming or anything, so I didn't really tell anyone about it. But I was also uh, sexually abused at a really young age. So um, that is something that is still really hard for my family to come to terms with, I think, because um, it's it's been hard for me. So I can imagine how hard it is for them. Um, I don't have like specific memories or I don't know who it was. I just know that it happened because of all of the symptoms that are, that have presented themselves over the years and certain memories that I have. Aside from those two things, I can't remember anything super specific about my childhood just because, you know, once there is trauma introduced into the mind, the mind tends to kind of block it out for survival purposes. Very much so. It The mind and the body love to be in homeostasis. So they will do any, or the mind and the body will do anything it can to kind of preserve that, which involves blocking out memories, especially ones that are really traumatic and ones that are really bad like sexual abuse, for example. So I'm really sorry that you did have to go through that. And that has affected you and your, to your adulthood today. Well, thank you. I, I think I can use it for a good purpose. So high school or adolescence, if you will. Mm -hmm. What did your teenage years look like? What type of teenager were you per se? <laughs> oh boy. So I was a really 
I just experienced things that other people weren't experiencing. And um, I just tried so hard to fit in. So like I listened to all of like the new popular music and I tried like fitting into the, the trends and like dressing a certain way. Um, I just really wanted friends. I really wanted to make some friends. And um, my during my childhood years, because I had experienced different living environment, um, I was a little more hostile towards people. So when I was a teenager, that's when I started to really kind of open up and start letting people into my life and start trusting them and not be so um, hostile towards people. And what did your friendships look like in high school or your relationships with your peers around you? So I had a few good friends. Aside from that, um, I just had acquaintances. So I was a bit of a, a floater, if you will. So I'd go from one click to another click. And um, I sort of fit in more with like the nerds, if you will. Uh, so I had a, a couple of friends who I, I won't name just for privacy purposes um, that really helped me through school. And they would kind of create a safe space for me to be able to talk about my experiences that I was like having at home. They were, they're awesome. I try to keep in contact with them today, um, but I'm not the best at that. So <laughs> you got a lot going on your mom of a little one. So that takes a <laughs> lot of time and that takes a lot of energy. So it's good that you, you know, you do make any sort of effort to try to keep up with those loved ones from, from your earlier, your earlier years but your high school, do you remember how big your high school was or like about the size of your graduating class? Yeah. So my graduating class, I believe when we finished, there were 65, maybe 66 people. And that had been one of the bigger classes. How was high school for you? High school was a lot of fun. It was a sort of escape for me. Um, of course, you know, everybody has their moments. I, unfortunately, it's common for people to be bullied. Um, I, I was kind of bullied in high school, um, but that's kind of where people are maturing and the bullying starts to kind of die off a little bit. Um, so there, we were a pretty tight knit class. Like we would, we would sit down in the senior hallway and we would like share answers to quizzes and things like that that were coming up or like homework. I, I sort of struggled with high school um, as, as far as like academically goes. Um, there was just like a lot of concentration problems because of the things that I was experiencing. My brain is trying to filter out all of the uh, the voices, the um, the seeing, the hallucinations, and uh, it made it really hard to focus during class. <laughs> Were you ever misdiagnosed with um, ADHD? Yes. So uh, that didn't happen until a few years ago. Um, I was talking to my therapist at the time. I There's this place called CAPSA. Um, and it's a free therapy service as well as a rehabilitation center. So there's social workers, um, things like that. But uh, yeah, they were like, we think you might have ADHD. 
And I was like, okay, that fits some of my symptoms, but you know, I don't think that that is the main reason why I'm experiencing these things, but you know, they, they put me on Adderall and it kind of sort of worked, but it wasn't super efficient. Did you play any or were involved in any clubs or activities? Yes. So I was in theater. I really, really enjoyed theater because I got to be somebody that I wasn't, (laughs) you know, and um, I did the Sound of Music my freshman year. I did the Wizard of Oz my sophomore year. Um, And my favorite to this day, Little Shop of Horrors. I don't know if you know that musical, but we did that my junior year. And that was so, so fun. I loved it. And then my senior year, we did Grease. So that was a lot of fun, too. did like such good musicals and plays wow not that um the ones because I was also in theater too not that the ones that were chosen were not good you know Mr. Baker if you're listening to this I'm not saying that but that is like a really awesome repertoire if you will did you engage in any risky behaviors like drinking in high school Yes, yes, I did. I think I started, I got introduced to alcohol when I was, I want to say, 14 or 15. That was the main thing. It was easily accessible. Uh, I had people, like I knew people in high school that could get it for me. But also, um, my parents were very much, if you're going to do it, I'd rather you do it here type of people, which I super appreciate because then I got to you know, do what I would have done anyway in a safer environment. What was your relationship with your parents or other family members like as a teenager? So it was really rocky. My dad was gone a lot because he was a truck driver. So I didn't have, my mom and I, we were super, super close. But we did fight a lot because we butted heads. Like, I'm kind of like the the weirdo of the family, if you will, <laughs> because I, I think a little differently. Um, I just don't experience the same things they experience. And so my mom and I, we butted heads a lot. You know, there were times where I, looking back on it now, I know she was like trying to protect me, but at the time it felt suffocating And it felt like I didn't have freedom of any sort. So like that autonomy that you start to crave when you're in your teenage years, I didn't really get that. What did your faith exploration look like as a teen? There wasn't a whole lot moving in that area at the time. I was dating a guy who was a Christian when I was 16 and I would go to church with him. But it was kind of slowly, quietly just moving along. There wasn't like a whole lot at the time. Like I knew I wanted to be closer to him, but I didn't really do things that would bring me closer to him. It's hard to have a relationship with Christ when you are in your teens too. I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of it's kind of just learning about who he is really I feel like most people or most youth truly don't develop a relationship until they are an adult 
and there's always going to be outliers, but I feel like, yeah, it's hard to have a relationship with God when, when you're in your teens. College was really hard. Uh, just because I didn't have the sort of social security blanket that I had in high school, because I had kind of grown up with these people, right? And some of them attended ISU, but um, I had my best friend and I had a few acquaintances from high school. So I kind of gravitated more towards them. And I was very socially awkward because my social understanding just wasn't really there because I didn't really get to go out of the house and do social things when I was a teenager. So that was pretty well stunted. Also in college is where I experienced my second experience with sexual abuse. Um, So that was from a professor that I had at the time. And um, it was a really (laughs) interesting situation, to say the least. That's kind of where I fell into the most depressed state that I had ever been in, because it was such an abusive relationship. And I say relationship because I did go into it um, willingly, but I didn't know what it would entail. Yeah, so that was really hard. And it really skewed the way that I saw things because you're still kind of evolving in your perspective at that age. I'm so sorry that that you went through that and it sounds definitely like a case of of grooming because you can still be groomed over mm-hmm. the age of 18. Yes. But it was an abuse of power for him, you know, he was somebody that was supposed to be a mentor in an education setting that clearly abused that power and abused that environment to take advantage of somebody who was a student. I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. I don't blame myself for it. I used to because I did go into it willingly um, into the relationship, but I've given myself a little bit more grace now looking back on it because I was, you know, 18, 19 and he was 42. So yeah, that was definitely a case of grooming. So due to that situation at Indiana State University, did that affect your your time there at all? What kind of happened after that relationship, for lack of a better term, blossomed, if you will, or that situation occurred? So I became so obsessed with him that I stopped attending classes. I started drinking more. Um, I started, I got into like going into the gym there for a hot minute and I was doing really good, but then I got introduced to like cigarettes and (laughs) that sort of sated that desire to let loose and just let my guard down because I couldn't do that naturally. Um, just because of like, not only am I going through a really hard situation, but I'm also experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia. And it's worse when you try to self-medicate with alcohol. Um, So it made my symptoms a lot worse. And like I said, I became so obsessed with this guy that I let my grades go. I think my ending, like when I dropped out of college, my ending GPA was a 0.32. If that gives you any kind of idea of like how much I just let myself academically go. I just want to point out to you, because I know 
that you had previously stated that you did struggle with school, a large portion of that due to the symptoms that you were experiencing starting at a young age, that it, it, it doesn't matter if you weren't good at school, air quotes, because you are such a well-spoken and smart individual and anybody who, who knows you or who's going to listen to this is clearly going to pick up on that. Like, it doesn't matter if you didn't excel in a, you know, academic setting, you, you were such a smart person. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. I was kind of under the impression growing up that I wasn't the brightest bulb in the tanning bed. So I, (laughs) I kind of have made that my identity, but um, you know, going through therapy now, it's, it's sort of evolved. Did you end up, you know, turning your, your GPA, your grades around and graduating from Indiana State University or where did your journey at ISU end? So it ended in 2014. Um, so shortly after I had enrolled in 2013 and, um, that's when I, when I dropped out of college, I, I did not graduate, but I did get into um, a sort of like a, a drug phase. So that's when I was introduced to um, pills, to marijuana, um, things like Suboxone and, um, you know, just like easily ac- accessible drugs in Indiana. And back then, um, pain pills were a lot more accessible than they are now. And people who have listened to um, the previous episode of the podcast know that I work in addiction recovery and Suboxone is one of the medications that we do in our clinic to treat opiate use disorder, even though of course it is an opiate itself, but it's in a controlled setting with a controlled dosage that is tailored to the individual to essentially prevent cravings and prevent symptoms of withdrawal. But wild for me to hear that Suboxone was so easily accessible because it's not that way now. They really (laughs) cracked down on painkillers. But how did that substance use affect the symptoms that you were experiencing with schizophrenia? So I remember the first time um, that I tried marijuana and I was telling the people around me what I was experiencing and they were like, that's not normal. We don't normally experience that. So I saw the walls sort of peeling. I don't know if you, if you can imagine that, but um, the walls were peeling. It felt like I was on a sinking ship. So like my center of gravity was a little thrown off. So like it looked like the house was sort of slanting up and I had to walk uphill to get to the bathroom when in reality, it's all completely flat. And if you've been in Indiana, you know that it's a very flat state. So there's no need for me to walk uphill (laughs) in my house to get to the bathroom. And already with opiates and marijuana, you can have um, delusions or or signs of psychosis, especially with, with, with opiates opiates especially. So I imagine that that just really amplified the symptoms that you were experiencing. How long did that period last for you? Never ended until I moved to Utah. So I stayed with that. Um, marijuana was like my drug. Like it, it was like the way that I could 
sort of cope with reality um, while also kind of drowning out the hallucinations. The It did make my paranoia a little bit worse. Um, of course, it's really unregulated when you get it off of the streets and it could be mixed with anything. So I've had marijuana that is laced with formaldehyde. I've had it laced with like just several different substances that are out there, out and about. Um, and I don't think the dealers themselves even knew. I guess I'm kind of going towards like, so don't blame the dealers, but you know, kind of blame the dealers because they should know where they're getting their stuff from. So glad that you brought that up because it is a common misconception in recovery world <laughs> that I'm in or that I work in that marijuana is not being laced with other substances and it's just propaganda for anti-marijuana laws and it's just not true because when you think about it marijuana even back then was a lot more acceptable than other substances like suboxone for example or heroin for example so it would be smart for the dealers or the distributors to lace that with other things in order to reach more clientele. It's actually smart. So I I give it to them, but just goes to show, yes, your marijuana can be laced with things and you need to be careful, but a teaching moment, if you will, Taryn. <laughs> <laughs> I can always appreciate a teaching moment, especially when it comes to like the drug world and like the sort of like rehabilitation, you know? Yes. And thank you for talking about that. And thank you for, for having that teaching moment, you know, with everybody who, who is listening, but, um, so Utah, we we've already kind of introduced Utah. What did your journey of moving to Utah look like? What did, what brought you to Utah? I wanted a change of scenery. I had been stuck in the same kind of area my entire life in Indiana and I, I did literally feel stuck. So I had, <laughs> I was sort of introduced to the LDS church out there, which is um, not common. It's really not common in Indiana. There's not a high population of LDS people whatsoever. It was just the luck of a draw. Or if you don't believe in coincidences, like I don't, I believe it was God intervening and saying like, hey, I am here. I was introduced to the LDS church. And that's when I started to sort of like, set myself to a higher standard than I had held myself before. And that's when I started to try to get clean and to not, not be an alcoholic, you know, go into recovery. Of course there's relapse. Um, there's always going to be uh, a relapse in my, in my case anyway, just because I was trying to self-medicate with such a, a chronic illness. Um, so I had a best friend who lived in Indiana and she had a lot of family out here extending anywhere from Hyde Park, which is the very tip of Utah to about Provo. So which it's like a little more central Utah, like maybe a little more South, but she said, Hey, I'm having a family reunion. Would you be interested in coming to kind of scope out the area? Because I know you're interested in going to school out here. Cause I, I wanted to go back to school. And um, so I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go check it out. And uh, we were just kind of driving around everywhere and I was just in awe of the mountains and the fresh air. <laughs> it's just so different from Indiana um, because it's not humid at all. It's a very dry climate. Like I didn't want to leave. So 
she was like, well, why don't you pray about it? And I was like, okay. So I prayed and fasted about it, kind of received the revelation that I was supposed to stay here. He introduced me to her brother and his family, and I stayed with them. I didn't take my plane ride home. I lived out of my suitcase for about a month, and um, my best friend at the time was slowly sending everything over um, from my house and trying to gather <laughs> up the little bits of things that I had left behind. And um, I've just I've been here ever since, and it's been. Oh, that that's awesome. That's clearly God working and just orchestrating that in such such a beautiful way, but also such an unexpected way as well. So I know that you said in Utah, you were introduced into the LDS church before moving to Utah. Did your faith journey start to, um, to heighten or to amplify? Yes. So while I was in the midst of my drug phase, I really, I was like, what is my purpose? And I think when you are in such a between a rock and a hard place, you start to question, why am I even here? You know, what is the point in living? Why, why should I continue with my life? And I became very suicidal during that time. Um, I was very reckless with the things that I was doing with my choices. And I wanted a sort of way to know that God was there because I had kind of felt him throughout my life while all of these events were transpiring. And while I was going through the, the really hard situations, I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to, you know, think about why I'm here. So as I started to do so, I started to feel a kind of like a lightening of my heart and that, that had never happened before. So that was something really, really new. And that was something that I had previously associated with the drugs, with that light feeling that you get when you are in such a relaxed state kind of had like a heart to heart with him and I didn't hear anything back for a long time but I started working at Claire's in the mall um off of like I think it's called the Wabash Valley Mall I I don't even remember it's been so long <laughs> since I've been there but um there was this girl who I was really good friends with and she didn't work on Sundays. And I was like, that's weird. You're taking this Christian thing really seriously. Like, <laughs> so I asked her, I was like, hey, what church do you attend? And she was like, oh, I attend the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she was like, you might know me better as a Mormon. And I'm like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> I was like, do you have teachers or something? And that is like the golden question um, that anybody who is in any kind of religion wants to hear is, do you have teachers? Because they, yes, they have teachers. <laughs> so um, she had invited me over to a family dinner where I had met um, three sets of missionaries. So there's in a, in a set, there's two people. So we believe that two people um, are called to go together to like, you know, preach the gospel. And uh, there were three sets of those. And there was a return missionary there along with her family, who is also LDS. And uh, that's kind of when things just kind of became light for me. Like I started seeing light. I started feeling light. Um, so I did eventually join the church. Just kind of I've stuck with it ever since. 
crazy how like you meet somebody and then that person just completely changes your life. That person eclairs. You never would have expected a person eclairs, you know, with all the jewelry and the earrings to change your life, but God puts people everywhere. <laughs> it doesn't matter where. Oh, <laughs> yeah. and I know you met your husband in Utah. So how did you meet your husband and when did you guys get married? So that was a really fun experience. It's something that we, to this day, consider a miracle just because Brady, excuse me, wasn't home when I was visiting. So I wouldn't have met him had I not stayed. Um, He was playing handball. Uh, I don't remember if it, it's the one where you like hit the ball with your hand, with your bare hand with like a glove, but no padding on the glove. Um, He was doing that while I was visiting. And so when I did decide to stay, we happened to be in the same ward. And there's like boundaries for like wards. Like you, you don't just choose like whatever uh, church you want to go to, although you can, and people do. Um, I've kind of believed in like going to the church that was like sort of designated for this sort like the area that you live in, because you're closer to the people who are in your ward. So you get to know them a little bit better because they're your neighbors. Um, but I met him. <laughs> I remember he was wearing a a paisley vest and he had the brightest blue eyes because the sun was shining in just right through the window in the church. Um, and I just thought he looked so handsome. And uh, he introduced himself really quickly and then he had to go because he had a meeting to go to. It was like during church when we had met. And then um, it kind of evolved from there. We became friends. And then we got married in February of 2019. So we were engaged for a couple of months, which is pretty standard for LDS people. So if you know anything about the culture, you know that they get married fast. (laughs) I was determined to not be that person, but I was that person. Um, Just because like at that point in my life, I was, I was 25. I knew what I wanted. I, I had been through so much at that point that I I knew what kind of person I was looking for. So when I found him, um, I was a little hesitant, but um, that's just because c- commitment is a really hard thing for me. Um, but it's been so good. He is like the best person in the world for me. And I couldn't imagine my life any other way. That's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful story. And I know that you have a daughter. You have a beautiful daughter. Um, when did you have, have your daughter? So I had her, I figured out I was pregnant in March of 2020. So that was really scary because COVID had just decided to show its ugly face right around that time. And that's when it really really hit Utah that like, things are going to be shutting down now. So when I gave birth to her in November of 2020, we were actually in a state of emergency um, during that time. So I was in the hospital with just Brady. I didn't have anybody else in there. Um, but yeah, so that was at at the end of 2020. So things were kind of like, they were still crazy, but we knew more about COVID at that point. And of course, how old, how old is she now? She's going to be turning three in a couple of months and it makes me sad. (laughs) Is she going to go to preschool? Are you going to send her to preschool at three or are you going to wait till four? I think we're going to wait until four. Um, I'm going to give her another year to kind of 
experience being away from mom and dad for longer periods of time Mm -hmm. before sending her to pre-k just because I'm with her all day every day so I know that she's eventually going to want to you know have some autonomy and meet other people she's a social butterfly so she is the exact opposite of her dad (laughs) but it's really I think she'll do really well in school so and she's so she's so cute and do you love being a mom I do it is like the best job in the world I (laughs) and it's such a a privilege because I know that not everybody can experience that and so I, I really try hard to not take it for granted and I try to be the best mom that I can be by going off of like what I do know and like the examples that I've had throughout my life. Thank you for talking about how you met your husband your family and then your daughter. I know you kind of talked about it a little bit already but when did you start having symptoms and what did your symptoms look like when they started in your earlier years of life? I remember seeing things that weren't actually there. Um, And I I knew they weren't there because I did reality checks where I would check in with the people around me and I'd be like, Hey, do you, do you see this? Do you hear this? Do you smell this? I have a sort of rare type of schizophrenia where I experience all of my senses um, as like a hallucination. So like I can sometimes taste things that aren't there. I can sometimes smell things that aren't there. Those two aren't as prevalent as much as the visual, the auditory and the tactile, which is where I feel things on my body that aren't actually there. Um, that didn't develop until a little bit later. So like the visual was more prevalent during my years, especially where I was starting to experiment with alcohol. It was just kind of crazy because the house that we lived in at the time, I'm pretty sure was haunted, but that could have just been completely me being under psychosis. And I, I would not to this day be able to tell you what the difference would be between those two. So you were, were very young when you started experiencing symptoms is that is that the norm for people who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or were you considered early in terms of when you started experiencing these symptoms so it's actually it's really rare for childhood schizophrenia to be um, diagnosed but also for it to be a thing just because people who are a little bit older between the ages of like 30 to 40, maybe a little bit younger than that, um, can be diagnosed with schizophrenia, but it is extremely hard for a child to be diagnosed. And I wasn't diagnosed at the time because again, I hadn't really been telling people about my experiences. I've just been kind of doing reality checks every now and then. And I would pretend that I was completely normal. Um, so yeah. <laughs> oh wow. And do you feel like your experience with sexual abuse caused you to start experiencing these symptoms as a child? Yes. Um I have done some light research here and there um and it is proven that trauma does exacerbate symptoms of whatever mental illness can be present, especially within your family lines. 
because schizophrenia, as far as we know, is a very genetic thing. Um, so it was like, it was sort of triggered, if you will, at that point. Do you have any family members who have um, a diagnosis of schizophrenia or they have any symptoms or um, traits of schizophrenia that you know of? Yes. So my dad was also diagnosed. I don't know if he was officially diagnosed, but I know that he's being treated Um, because I I think they're starting to kind of go more away from diagnosing and putting labels on people and more treating the symptoms and just, you know, going more along that route. Um, He is being treated for hallucinations and delusions and paranoia. Um, Although he doesn't call it schizophrenia, I think he's scared of the word. There's a really big misconception that it's a death sentence. Um, It's not. It's (laughs) I'm still here. I'm still thriving. I'm doing well. Um, And he's doing a lot better since he's been um, being medicated for it. I'm glad that he's experiencing relief from his symptoms or, or some of his symptoms. And I like how you touched on the fact that a lot of um, mental health professionals are moving away from treating a diagnosis and more so towards treating the symptoms, because I also think it leads to a culture in the medical community where we're not labeling people what they're experiencing. So you're not, Taryn, you're not schizophrenia. You're somebody who has schizophrenia symptoms. Like we aren't what is happening to us. We're people first. Absolutely. That was really, really great to touch on that. Cause I'm sure a lot of people weren't aware of that or weren't aware of that among the people who are experiencing schizophrenia symptoms community. So thank you for touching, for touching on that. Did your symptoms progress over time? And then what did that look like for you? Yes. So I started hearing things a little more often. I would hear my name being called from like the other room and, but it was a voice that I didn't recognize. Um, it, it was very much uh, outside of the head at first. And then it sort of evolved into hearing voices inside of my head. Um, so the, there's not just one internal dialogue going on. There's, there's multiple, there's quite a few. Um, and they can pick up on the voices of those around me. Um, they can pick up on even movie characters. I've had one that sounded like Gollum for a hot minute and that was kind of weird. Um, but (laughs) so that evolved, my visuals, um, evolved the tactile, uh, hallucinations started to evolve. I started feeling more and more like bugs were crawling on my feet in my arms and I would try to like scratch away at them and it became so bad in the middle of the night that I would scratch my shin raw and I would be like bleeding when I woke up in the morning. Those are, those are some really serious symptoms that you experience that I'm sure have an effect on your everyday, on your everyday life. What pushed you to seek help or to strive towards a diagnosis or strive towards taking care of your mental health? So my husband actually prompted that before we decided we were going to get married. He was like, hey, I want you to be better for you. I want you to be able to show up for yourself. But I also want to know that you are serious about this relationship. So 
what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, try some therapy out, see how you do with it. And that's when I went to CAPSA because I have a real, like I have a history of abuse and that's what they specialize in. They specialize in this sort of like abuse trauma. So I went there and, um, they didn't suspect anything at first, uh, until I started asking them for reality checks, my therapist. And I'm sure it, that would have been really intimidating to go into a therapy session, especially with a new therapist and go, hi, I'm Taryn and the walls are peeling. I'm feeling bugs on me. I'm scratching my shin raw in the middle of the night. I'm sometimes hearing voices and I'm having reality checks. I'm, I'm, I'm sure no, I'm sure nobody does that. And if they do, they, they are really, really brave, but I think it's great that you started with therapy and then your therapist was prompted by those reality checks to kind of check in with you and to take that seriously and advocate for you and to want to explore, to explore that further before going into therapy. I know you said sometimes you would do reality checks with the people around you just to kind of see if what you were feeling, what you're feeling or what you were experiencing was true reality, but had you ever confided in anybody before going to into therapy about the symptoms that you were experiencing and the concern that you had? Kind of. Um, I, I knew I wasn't normal, but I didn't know that what I was experiencing wasn't normal, if that makes sense. So I would talk to um, my husband about it a little bit and he would be like, that's something you should definitely bring up to your therapist. So he was really like the big um, push that I needed to get myself healthy again. And then when you went to go and um, pursue a diagnosis, because I'm sure, you know, at that time you weren't like, I am going to get a diagnosis of, of schizophrenia. I'm sure, you know, you were just exploring, you know, the options for you, but did you go through that with the therapist that you were seeing or were you referred to another doctor or another clinic of sorts? A little bit of both. I kept seeing my therapist, but then I was referred to a specialist who um, had kind of had experience with serving the people in like Afghanistan and Iraq area where there's a lot of trauma, like really big trauma, not that any trauma is bigger than the other, but like, we're talking about like war torn areas. So she's had a lot of people who have, um, schizophrenic symptoms that she's kind of worked with. So um, my therapist thought that she would be a good person to go to. So I started going to her and they kind of would check in with each other every now and then just to make sure they were on the same page outside of me telling them, um, you know, like, yes, I've been telling my therapist this. Yes, I've been telling my doctor this and just like just being super open and honest about everything. But they would also check in behind the scenes, which I super appreciate. Um, them being able to collaborate like that, because I think that is key in like receiving the right treatment. Yeah. Somebody who works in the mental health field, I think that's incredible and sadly doesn't happen a lot 
a lot, you know, having that type of collaboration between providers, but that should be the gold standard. And I think that it's awesome that you had really great providers that you were working with that were clear advocates for you and also very invested into your treatment between those two providers. So that's awesome. Um, Were you ever misdiagnosed or did they explore other diagnoses for you in the? Yes, they, they didn't want to diagnose me with something um, like that right off the bat. So we played around with depressive, uh, like depressive disorder with psychotic symptoms. We played around with bipolar. We played around with schizoaffective disorder. Um, But eventually the symptoms persisted long enough and they were present no matter what I was feeling, um, whether I was in a depressive state or whether I was in a more, um, I guess in the medical world, you would call it a more manic state, but I'm not manic, if that makes sense. I'm just, I have more energy than I normally would um, just because I'm so used to being like so depressed all the time. Um, I had really low energy levels. So when I did start receiving some sort of uh, treatment, my body went into a sort of like big roller coaster of like, I'm feeling all the highs and feeling all the lows. And, you know, so they thought I had schizoaffective for a a year or two. um, But the symptoms were there no matter whether I was feeling depressed or not. And then were your symptoms debilitating and how did they affect your, your everyday life? Did they affect, you know, your appetite and your ability to nourish yourself? Did it affect your ability to have a relationship with others, your ability to do tasks or even hold a job? What did that look like for you? So thankfully I had a really good job when I first moved out here. Um, and they had been with me throughout the entire process of me trying out different medications and they were very understanding. It was a small business. It's still a small business, but it's a little bit bigger now. Um, and it was a a locally owned business. So the managers there, um, I had a a fantastic manager to this day. I say he's probably one of my favorites. He was so understanding and he was just very willing to work with me. And if I needed to like take a break from work, he was more than willing to happy. Like he was happy to provide that for me. So that was really good. It does affect my everyday life in the sense that um, I have a hard time with hygiene. I have a hard time with being able to filter out the voices in my head versus, you know, what the actual person in front of me is talking about. <laughs> kind of like in th- in this moment, I I wasn't able to eat a lot just because a lot of my paranoid thinking surrounded food. Like I I grew up watching horror movies. So, if you can kind of picture someone with that background having schizophrenia, Um, those hallucinations play off of the things that you've seen before. So I couldn't eat rice um, because they looked like bugs. Um, I didn't trust anything that anybody else had made. I, I had to make it, you know, and I wasn't super good at pushing myself to make meals or anything, especially before Juliet. Um, I know that we kind of talked about the time period where you started therapy and you kind of started to see another provider who was helping you along your diagnosis journey and that you were also 
kind of misdiagnosed with schizoaffective um, disorder for about a year. But from start to end per se, I know that there's never exactly an ending and things are evolving as you you and I have talked about before, but how long did it take for you to get your proper diagnosis or your diagnosis that describes the symptoms that you're experiencing right now? It took me a few years um, just from a sort of start until now type of situation. I think it was about two years ago, maybe three, um, that they were like, okay, this is a little more serious than we thought it was. And now again, it's not a death sentence. It's just a, you, you have to be properly treated for the right thing because, you know, I was being treated for schizoaffective, but none of that medication was super effective for me. Um, just because it was only treating certain aspects. So, Um, I couldn't tell you like the makeup between the medications and like what really made the difference for me. I think it took probably a few years before I received a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And for the actual diagnostic process, if you will, what did that look like for you? Were there different assessments that they had you do or different questions that they asked you? Was it trial and error with different medications that led to a proper diagnosis? What did the diagnostic kind of process look like? So my therapist um, and my doctor, (laughs) they were really smart to not tell me that they were asking me the questions that would be qualifying questions to diagnose certain things just because I'm a really nervous test taker. So when they, when they tell me, Hey, I'm going to start asking you questions to see if you have this thing. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. So I think I have everything. Um, and it's another, I think it's another symptom of, of schizophrenia to think that like, Oh, what, what if I have this? What if I have that? You know, or maybe it's just a hypochondriac thing, but, um, they're really smart to not tell me that, uh, you know, Hey, I'm going to be asking you these questions. And uh, the diagnosis didn't come until they started like actually treating me for schizophrenia. So like I'm on Abilify right now and um, it is specifically like for antipsychotic symptoms. Um, it's an antipsychotic for psychotic symptoms. Now, thank you for for going through that and for, for talking about what the process looks like. Cause I think it's important to include that because if anybody who's listening is thinking that they're experiencing some symptoms, it kind of gives them a guide on how they can advocate for themselves um, if they seek they seek intervention, if you will. So thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um, what does treatment and support look like for you, and has it changed over time since you've gotten your proper diagnosis? Yes, so I am on several uh, medications. I. I have schizophrenia, but I also have anxiety. I have CPTSD. I have depression. Um, although there isn't like a whole lot of medication for PTSD, um, there is for like anxiety and depression. So I take, uh, you know, a few, like a handful of medications every day. Um, but I also do like a monthly injection type of thing. Um, I have a new therapist because you sort of graduate from CAPSA. Um, 
to because there's a really long waiting list and they have a lot of um, different things to address. So I went to a more long-term facility and I've been seeing that therapist since I've had Juliet. So for about two, two and a half years now, she is amazing. I absolutely love her. I also try to keep um, my dad kind of like in the loop with what I'm experiencing and what's going on. So he's a sort of like support for me. And of course, my husband, um, he is a huge support person. Outside of that, I have a few good friends that I open up to every now and then, but I don't want to overload them. So I really try not to talk about it too much because it can be a lot for people. It's very overstimulating for the person who's experiencing it, but it can also be overstimulating for people who are listening to people talk about those things. How has your faith kind of played into your diagnosis and your treatment and how you take care of yourself? That that has been a really long journey for me. Um, I've been a member since 2015, two days before my birthday is when I got baptized and I was confirmed a member of the church the day after and then I had my birthday. So I was 21 and I'm now 28. So about seven years I've been, you know, kind of like experimenting with this. And I started to see myself as more of a, a daughter of God, you know, as a person who is cared about and who is unconditionally loved by someone much higher than me and who has a higher way of thinking. Um, And it has helped me want to take care of myself because if I am a daughter of a king, you want to treat yourself like royalty, right? So I, I really try to keep myself to those standards and I still kind of struggle with hygiene and things like that. Um, But I'm a lot better now. I I don't dabble with alcohol. I've been sober from that for about five years now. I haven't like had a cigarette for five years now as well. Um, Maybe, maybe five or six years. It's been a little minute, you know, aside from that, it's, it's just been really, really good for me to know that somebody is there and that somebody cares and that I can reach him anytime literally anytime any if it's in the middle of the night I can reach out to him and be like hey I'm having a hard time can you please comfort me and there's always comfort it may not come in the moment that I ask for it but it is always there it always comes like prayers are always answered (laughs) that that was so beautiful for you to describe especially you saying you know I'm a daughter of the king like I'm a daughter of the most high and I'm gonna strive towards that like I'm going to treat myself with so much love and respect because that's how God views me. And that that's just so beautiful. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I love the way, I love the way that you talked about that. It was just so, it was just so beautiful. Um, I did want to make sure that we got to um, talking about stigma because there is a lot, a lot of stigma with um, schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders a lot. And I wanted to make sure that we talked about it just so people are more educated and they're given a better and more realistic glimpse into what it actually is like for somebody. Um, what would you like people to know about schizophrenia or having schizophrenia symptoms? I'm not a monster. 
I'm really, I'm not, I'm, I'm a human being just like you. I experience the highs and the lows of the emotions. I do my best to write out what I'm experiencing, um, but it doesn't make me a person who is inhuman, if that makes sense. I saw this sort of, uh, not a TikTok because it was on Facebook, but it was a Facebook reel about this guy and uh, it was his older sister filming him and her son and they were playing together a little bit like he obviously was very affected by something um and in the video she disclosed that he has schizophrenia and she just loved seeing the bond between her like two-year-old son and her older brother her little brother um who has schizophrenia because he comes over every night to watch a movie with them and just kind of like relax and you know just you know do things like normal people would but in the comments there were so many people that were like don't leave them alone together don't let them out of your sight make sure there's no knives anywhere nearby um just because of like you know when you do hear about schizophrenia it's not in a setting where it's um more realistic <laughs> I guess is what you want to say. You hear about the horror stories. You hear about like murderers who have, you know, possibly have schizophrenia. It's not even like a, a diagnosis, it's like a formal diagnosis. It's just like a suspected type of thing. You hear about, you know, people being stabbed. You hear about people being like ran over by cars or something, you know, something crazy like that. And it's just not realistic. It's a very, very small percentage of us that act out in that. And when we do act out in that, it's a psychosis. Um, I think that's a big misunderstanding is that people think that when you're in psychosis, you can still discern your surroundings and you can't, you, you really can't. Thank you so much for, for, for talking about that. It's so important for people to know that you're, you're human. You're, you're not dangerous. Like uh, to me, like knowing you, it would seem just the absolutely ludicrous for somebody to associate you, Taryn, with being dangerous and having that be even in the same paragraph like <laughs> at all. It just, it, it blows my mind as somebody who knows you, but yes, just because you experience those symptoms doesn't mean that you're dangerous. And I don't think that the TV shows really help with that either, because a lot of times like the crime shows or like the, the, the murder mystery shows, they'll have the perpetrator be, um, plead mental insanity and then have something like schizophrenia and then completed this heinous crime. And then they're blasting that on TV for people to see. And then people take that as reality when it's not, it's not reality. In mental health, it is so, it affects everyone so differently. It, they have a general idea of what it looks like and how it presents itself, but it affects everyone differently. Very much so. And I know you and I have talked about this, but I do a lot of outreach in the community for my job. And I, of course, work with people who are using substances meth is really big right now. I know like the, the big focus is on opiates, but meth is very much being pushed by the cartels. And when people are taking meth or they're um, taking substances that are being laced with meth or meth's being laced with something else, they have a higher likelihood of experiencing psychosis. So I do come across individuals who are very much 
in drug-induced psychosis. And even when I come across these individuals, I never <laughs> feel like I'm in danger because they're they're not a harm to me. If anything, I'm worried about their safety and who could take advantage of them. Big, big, big misconception that everybody who experiences psychosis is just a danger to society. I love that you said that because I feel, and I also know through statistics, that the biggest threat to people who have schizophrenia um, is themselves. They are more likely to commit suicide than they are to commit a murder. Um, like I said before, it's a very, very small percentage of people who do lash out, but they think they're doing it for their own safety because they are in psychosis. What are some other misconceptions that people have of schizophrenia or other psychotic um, disorders? I have been very blessed to not experience much of a stigma. I do have a lot of people who are very flaky after I tell them, hey, I have this thing that I struggle with. They, I think because of the stigma that is there, they become a little more flaky. Um, but I have been very blessed to not encounter that so much. I've been very well supported. Um, people have been very understanding. But I, I do think that people who look at people who have psychotic disorders, they think that they just flip like a switch. Like, like all of a sudden you're there and you're, you're engaging and, um, and then the next moment you're not, and you're just a monster all of a sudden. It's like, that's not the way that works at all. Like there has to be some sort of trigger in the environment in order for that person to like uh, air quotes here flip because it's just, that's just not how it works, you know? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, a lot of times people's environment that they're in or um, their stress levels can be a trigger that can lead to that state but it's never just, yeah, like what you said, the flip of the switch, like the people that I meet sometimes out in the community are often using substances, but they're also homeless, which is very, very stressful to be in constant survival mode. So it's a perfect storm, if you will, for them to experience that state, but it's not the flip of a switch, just like what you said. Absolutely. You know, now that I think about it, um, while I was working at that job uh, with the the man, the very understanding manager that I had, there was this lady who would come in and she would mumble to herself a little bit. And whenever she would open up to me, um, she'd be like, "Look, I can't tell you where I'm going to go after this because they're watching me." And I was like, "What is going on? Like this person, this poor person." like is on under constant stress. And on top of that, she was homeless. She would come into the store to like get a drink every now and then. And sometimes I would like, you know, give her the money for it because like I had extra cash on me. It was just like a, a very eye-opening moment for me because I was like, you know, that, that could have been me. Like that very easily could have been me. And I have so much more compassion for people who are homeless now because of the stress that they're under 
I was a bit of a, a nomad before I came to Utah. I kind of lived off of the couches of my friends and would kind of go, come and go with my parents and um, just kind of live this chaotic lifestyle. And when I was thinking back on that, after I had I had this interaction with this lady, it was just like very, it was a very much a gratitude filled moment for me. I was like, man, I am so glad God stepped into my life when he did. And I am so glad that I can be here for this person to kind of help them, you know, know that God loves them too. And that things are not always going to be like this. Well, thank you so much for, for talking about that and for talking about that interaction of, you know, coming across somebody else who very well could have had a similar diagnosis to you, um, in seeing how different, like your situation was from them and even potentially some different symptoms too. You know, it's not a one size fits all thing. Not everybody who has schizophrenia is, is homeless and isn't able to keep a job or et cetera, et cetera. That is, that's also common misconception is that (laughs) there, every person that you see on the side of the highway is using substances and also has schizophrenia or, or something of the sorts. Very, very, very common misconception. How have your perceptions of schizophrenia changed since your diagnosis? So I know I've been saying this a lot throughout um, this process that it's not a death sentence, but when I first got told, hey, you could have something kind of serious that you need to be on medication for for the rest of your life, I was like, are you serious? I Am I, am I going to die from this? Like, I really did think it was a death sentence. So that's why I'm so adamant now about saying it's not, it's not, because it's not only for somebody who is listening, it is also for myself because um, there is such a big stigma surrounding it. Um, it it was a very uh, difficult journey, especially with God, because I thought that I was hearing his voice and I thought he was showing me things, you know, like through the third eye or, you know, seeing things through the veil. And that's another big misconception is that like, well, what if, what if what you're experiencing is actually a gift? What if it's a spiritual gift? And I'm like, "Mm, no, because I wouldn't want this. I would not wish this on anyone. I do not believe that this is a gift. I would not want anyone else to see what I see. And if that is a gift, (laughs) then I'm not talking to the right kind of person, but God was so understanding. And I I talk about him like I know him really well, but I, I'm still learning about him, but he's, he's been so forgiving. He's been so compassionate. He's just been so patient with me throughout my whole faith process, because I did feel really betrayed at first, because like I said, I thought I was hearing him. I thought he was talking to me the reality is that like, that's just not how he was speaking to me. Like he may speak like that to other people. I don't know. I can't say because I'm not other people, but um, that's just not how he talks to me. He talks to me through the spirit, through other people, you know, things like that. It wouldn't be like a direct voice for me because I do have this disorder um, and it would be very confusing for me to try to differentiate between him and my hallucinations. It's wonderful that you touched on that because it goes to show that he isn't a God of confusion. 
he's going to tailor his communication to us so that way we have, you know, the best shot, if you will, at communicating with him or him communicating with us. So if you are or struggling with those types of symptoms, he's not going to try to like intercept. He's going to try to talk to you in a way that's going to work for you because he knows you. What symptoms would you tell others to be aware of if themselves or a loved one were to have concerns? So I think some of the biggest red flags are hearing things. Um, Because I think that that auditory or possibly visual is is probably the most common um, with people who have a, a psychotic disorder. Um, also I would be aware of the kind of thinking that you have, the perception that you have of yourself and the perception that you have of other people around you. Um, if you don't feel safe, even though rationally you are in a safe environment, but if you don't feel safe and if you feel like someone is watching you, um, that's something to kind of be aware of for me. Um, that could also just be like a, like a, a, just like a paranoid type of thinking. And that could very well not be associated with a psychotic disorder, but those were my biggest things. So I knew when I told my therapist that I, Hey, I was hearing voices and I think people are out to get me. And I think people are actively listening in on our conversation right now to gather information about me. Um, that's when she was like, okay, tell me more about that because that's not something everybody experiences. That's really good to tell other people. So that way they can have more of a concrete idea of ways to be more in tune with what you should be looking for in things that are also correct and not just stigmatized um, symptoms as well. What would be your biggest advice to those who are struggling with mental health? Oh boy, this, you got to keep pushing. There's light. There's so much light and there are blessings unmeasured at the end of the tunnel. You've just got to keep pushing forward. And I know it is the hardest thing in the world and it is all you can do to just keep breathing and living every day. But it is so, so important that you keep pushing because everybody would be better with you in their lives. The people around you will tell you, you are bettering my life. You are, because you are here on the earth right now, you are bettering my life. So I would not have met my husband had I not kept pushing because I did struggle a lot with suicide. And even while I was pregnant, I was struggling with suicide. Um, I would, I would cut myself. I would do self-harm to kind of cope with it. Had I not gone to therapy, had I not um, you know, called the cops when I needed to. I would not have met my husband. I would not have met my sweet little daughter who is just my absolute everything and more. The biggest thing that I can say is just, you've got to keep pushing. That is, that is beautiful and wonderful advice. And thank you so much for, for sharing that with others. But Taryn, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on here for, for being vulnerable, for feeling comfortable to come 
to come onto the space to put yourself out there because that is really hard to do. And I'm so happy that you agreed to come on and just to share your wisdom um, of your life. I just, just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really, I was flattered. Like I was like, really like <laughs> highest state of honor would be like, to just to be able to open up about, you know, the things that I experience and to be able to share it with other people. Cause that's my biggest mission in life is to, you know, let people know that they're not alone. Oh, well, thank you again. Thank you so much. So as I previously had stated, September has two episodes and this is the second episode of September that will be on the last Friday um, of the month. But of course, if you're listening to that or listening to this, you already know that because it's already come. In October, we'll probably be back to a regular posting schedule, but maybe I'll feel fancy and post another um, second episode because it is my birthday month. We shall see. I guess I'll keep you on your toes. But as you know, you're welcome to explore your faith here. Jesus always welcomes you home. And so do I. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being here. You can listen to the Through Every Season podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Feel free to follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram, and the handles are mentioned in the description of the podcast. Welcome to my family. Thanks for being here.